Welcome to this episode of Disrupt, a podcast of the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Dr. Justin Kobe, director of Cedar Care Village Pharmacy. In this episode, we tackle a topic that is timely and rapidly changing, which is test-to-treat protocols within community pharmacies. Well, everyone, welcome back to our newest edition of Disrupt. I'm excited to have my friend, Dr. Justin Kobe, back on the podcast with us again. So, Justin, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Cole. I'm uh, really excited to be back on. Uh, you know, as I continue to listen to episodes and be inspired by the conversations that you're having. So, thank you so much. Absolutely. So today's topic is one that's been somewhat controversial, I think is fair to say, in recent weeks, and that is test to treat protocols in pharmacies. So to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about what a test to treat protocol is? Yeah, well, I I love the the moniker because it's it's simply testing and then treating in the pharmacy setting. And really, that's a simplicity that we should uh, really appreciate because that's that's the whole goal here. How do we uncomplicate our healthcare system. And one way to do that is simply, if we have CLIA waived point of care testing equipment, why not go ahead and treat the patient if they test positive? So that's really the movement in pharmacy right now is looking at what can we do inside the pharmacy instead of adding waste and cost to the system. I think that's a great summary. So why in the world is this such a timely and controversial topic right now? What are your thoughts? How did we even get here today? Uh, money. So yeah, it's always, I always tell students when you're trying to figure out something that seems too complex or complicated and you can't figure out from the face value, why is this so complicated? Follow the money. <laughs> so yeah, right now I think w- what the big deal is, is that the you got folks in the in in medicine who m- maybe would feel like their toes are getting stepped on. I was just having a conversation with Luke before this that you know I think in medicine we all want to dance together, but that means we step on toes from time to time. So I, I think if we have this test to treat model, cutting out the provider in the interaction, I think the providers are getting. Uh, a little concerned about that, and then of course uh, reimbursement. So the money for us, how are we going to get reimbursed for these services if we're going to uh, implement them? So right now we're in a position where we can either, as we do at Cedar Care, charge cash, a cost for those tests, um, don't get paid for our counsel or education, and then simply get paid for dispensing, say, a Tamiflu if somebody tests positive uh, for influenza. So that that's a model, but I think what we'd like to get to is, hey, why not? Why can't we bill uh, medically the insurance uh, for our time and our, our work and our supplies as well, uh, and then also get paid for the administration of the medication in the same moment? If you think about it, if you came and got a 10-minute test, I counseled you on using Tamiflu, and then you left with that Tamiflu, you're talking... 30, 45 minutes tops. And then uh, that avoids you being sent to the urgent care, coming back with that script. 
So really, uh, I, I think the issue is is how do we how do we get paid for it, and whom are we uh, pushing out of that interaction that would otherwise be offended? Well, as you're speaking, I was reminded of a statistic that I've read in multiple different places that when you look at the percentage of prescriptions written that are actually filled by a patient, yeah. it's pretty abysmal, right? Yeah. I, I mean, it seems like to me this test to treat protocol is almost a no-brainer in the ter- in terms of you know what the diagnosis is, you then have the resource in that place to give it to the patient to help them to recover, and it seems that adherence is actually going to be much higher. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And I know exactly what statistic you're talking about because it's the same one we have pitched for the last 10 years. And it basically what it goes down to is it, it dwindles down. So 100% of the people receive a script, only 60% of them make it to the pharmacy. And then it, by the end of it, only 25% of those individuals who filled it stay compliant. So yeah, exactly. Why, why would we waste any more time with uh, adherence issues when we could take care of it with this test to treat model. Yep, absolutely. So I, I want to inject a little bit of context that's led to maybe some of the controversy that we've seen in the broader medical community over this test to treat idea. So uh, as we know, there are varying opinions on utilizing these protocols in pharmacies. And recently, uh, Gerald Garman, uh, who's the president of the American Medical Association or AMA, one of the largest um, organizations that um, supports physician practice here in the United States. Um, He released a statement that contained the following, and so I'm going to read a quotation here. So, quote, establishing pharmacy-based clinics as a one-stop shopping for COVID-19 testing and treatments is extremely risky. Pharmacy-based clinics typically treat simple illnesses such as strep throat. Yet COVID-19 is a complex disease, and there are many issues to consider when prescribing COVID-19 antiviral medications. Leaving prescribing decisions this complex in the hands of people without knowledge of a patient's medical history is dangerous in practice and precedent. COVID-19 is not strep throat, end quote. So... What are your thoughts about this statement? Pretty provocative, in my opinion. Yeah, I think if you go back to 1918 and ask everybody about influenza A, they would have said it was complicated too. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, okay. So there's a lot we don't know. Um, In the defense of his statement, uh, Paxlovid, if you're not aware of your kidney function, yeah, we might have a problem. Uh, We need to make some changes to the therapy if we don't have that, that information. That being stated, typically patients know whether or not they have (laughs) renal disease. Um, But I also would say that this lends more to that dancing together without stepping on toes. So, okay, I hear you in what you're saying, but wouldn't you want to come 25% of the way our way instead of saying, well, they'll, they'll just not have access to those medical records. Well, why not? Why shouldn't we? Uh, why not, you know, uh, ensure that these COVID positive patients don't darken your doorstep? As I recall, during the pandemic, a lot of doctor's offices said, don't come and see us. Well, we in the community pharmacy and we kept our doors open and we were in the Petri dish. So I don't know. I, there's some give and take there. Yes, I agree. COVID is still kind of complicated right now. We're going to get past that. I think we'll we'll view COVID just like we do view influenza. 
And I'll be honest, I think strep is more complicated, especially in pediatric patients. If, yep, as you as you know well, if uh, if a pediatric patient is coming back and constantly testing positive for strep, well, that can lend to uh, potentially a tonsillectomy later on down the road. A podiatrist needs to be involved. So I'm actually more concerned about treating someone with strep than I am about COVID at this point. Uh, so it, yes, I, I, I agree with what he's saying as in we should take it seriously. I disagree on what he's saying in that we can't handle that. <laughs> it can be handled. We just need to be able to access more uh, of their medical record. That's all. Absolutely. Uh, I'm curious, in your experience, is the opinion that Dr. Harmon um, represented a widely accepted sentiment among physicians that you interact with? Yeah, I'm not going to name any names, but I would say, yes, you are seeing that uh, from some other providers that are concerned. Now, I, I think in general, that concern still lends to this is, uh, relatively speaking, still a novel virus. Uh, we're not sure with these EUAs, these emergency use authorizations, what what can of worms are actually opening up. Um, yeah, I, I have yet, I'll say this, I've yet to interact with a provider who doesn't feel concerned about a, a simple test to treat. Now, when I'm talking to patients and asking them if they would call their provider and ask about getting these medications prescribed to them, that seems to go over pretty well. So it's when I'm trying to talk to providers and get like a blanket collaborative agreement, a pseudo blanket collaborative agreement. It's, I have to be careful how I say that. Um, that's when concerns really get raised. Whereas if it's somebody they've interacted with, they know they've tested positive. Now we're talking about a, an individual human. They seem to be more responsive to that. Yeah. And just to add a little bit of context to my interactions, I, I actually know quite a few physicians who are very supportive of this type of thing. Yeah. Um, some physician organizations have actually come out with statements that are, uh, I wouldn't say opposed to Dr. Harmon's, but that present a different view, more in support of looking at the healthcare team as collaborative and including pharmacists in part of this. Yeah. Um, the reality is, and I'd love if you could speak to this, our healthcare system is unfortunately more broken than it should be coming out of this pandemic. Um, I'm thinking about the shortages of nursing staff and primary care physicians. That's only going to worsen over the next uh, six to 10 years based on all of the statistics I'm seeing. So uh, I'd love for you to contextualize how test to treat actually might be a good paradigm shift in terms of the healthcare system we're living right now. What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. Well, like I said earlier, I, you know, we, we as community pharmacy stayed in the mix where I think doctor's offices, you know, they, they made some decisions that they made and it, it, it I think it made the siloing of healthcare worse. So I'm going to, I am going to hang my hat on that. I've hung my hat on that for many years that the siloing that we see in healthcare is so detrimental. I also want pharmacists to think long and hard about that, that as we enter into this provider status era, are we going to pull what everybody else has when they get more rights? Mm, good point. Yeah. We don't want to silo ourselves. We want to be a part of the team. We want autonomy in how we interact with our patients. So I, yes, I agree. I think coming out of this pandemic, we have a lot of burnout people. We have a lot of corporations who say just throw more money at the problem instead of thinking and talking with the individuals who are actually doing the work. I won't name names. 
but it's just it's it's sad and hard to to see uh, people in my profession who are um, just chewed up and spit out by the machines that we have going in our healthcare systems. I think if we slow down and we think about interactions with individual people and we think about uh, what a community we want uh, to look like when it comes to medicine, um, if we'd slow down, I think we'd get that. I really, Dr. Colate, I really was hoping that the whole slowdown thing would take hold during COVID. I really thought, okay, God's going to give us a reset. He's, he's going to let us do this. Um, but unfortunately I think there's, there's just, there's too, just too much money to be made. We can't slow down. So yeah. And I think with, with, you're right with, with medicine, I don't think it's six to 10 years. I think I saw something in the next two years, mm, three yeah. years that we're, we're going to see this max exodus that we've talked about. So yeah, it's concerning. Uh, you bring up a great point that I'd, I'd love to elaborate on a little. And that is the fact that I think often the silo effect is created by asking the wrong questions. Sometimes we, meaning pharmacists and probably other professions as well, go in asking what can I do or what should I be doing rather than asking how can I collaborate to really enhance patient care? And maybe I'm nuancing that too much, but they're two different questions. One yeah. is asking what's in it for me. And the other is saying, how do I improve the health of my community with the other resources that are around me? And I think if we could reframe our, our thinking to then be more collaborative and understand we're not on different teams. Yeah. We are on the same team. And at the end of it is the patient that we're caring for. I, I think we'd be better off. 100%. You know, preventative health is something that we kind of throw around uh, we've thrown around for the past 20 years, but no one's really doing it well. I really think this is the gap in space that pharmacy can, can do it. Uh, great example of this. It's very timely. Today, uh, we had partnered with the local school system to provide biometric screenings. And by biometric screenings, I mean lipids, triglycerides, blood sugar, that, that sort of thing. Uh, so we had somebody come in and we produced an ASCVD score. So Basically, what is your risk in the next 10 years of developing cardiovascular disease? I had someone who sat down with me in great health, BMI in the low 20s um, for her age, very fit. And the scores came, her numbers came back, her blood work came back, and there was some elevation. It was a lot of concern. Then we calculated the ASCVD score and we can say, well, hey, you're pretty low risk, but you should know this. You might want to talk to your doctor about that. So we didn't take over, you know, we're still going to push her back to her provider to have that conversation about whether or not starting medication makes sense. But that's an example. It was so timely that we can do that together. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the idea of how pharmacists are trained today to go into the profession at a baseline as soon as they walk out of the doors of their school or college of pharmacy and whether you feel they're ready to evaluate patients on a front that looks at whether they need to be referred because of maybe the severity of their illness um, to another provider. So do you feel like we're in a place where we do that well, or is that a place we need to grow? Ah, yeah. Wow. That's a good question. I think, I think there does need to be some growth there. 
I think because we're in this changing atmosphere, um, I, we should just do our best to stay out of the diagnosis lane. So anytime, that's what I kind of tell students is anytime you're starting to walk down that path, stop. That's not what we're here for. There's a lot we can do. There's a lot we can help with, but looking at the scores I saw from the patient I had today, uh, I could have made a statement like there's a chance you, you may be pre-diabetic here. Um, and that's something that maybe I have the right to say, but I at no point can say or diagnose her with pre-diabetes. So I think that's, those are the little nuances. I gave that specific example because, uh, we need to understand that we need to see specific examples of, Hey, let's not go here. Let's stay over there. And we're so early on in this provider status thing that I don't think the schools have had a chance to really demonstrate at speed what that would look like, like the interaction I had today. A great example of where this idea comes into play is related to treatment of COVID-19. So mm. I got an email come across my inbox today that said, um, remdesivir was approved for use in children as young as four weeks of age, that, right? Yeah. And I'm a pediatric pharmacist, and so this is right <laughs> up my alley. But for the community pharmacist who may not be in that specialty practice, are there exclusions? Like, are there certain populations that, that we should say, you know, we, we need others to come alongside and determining both diagnosis and, and maybe those initial drug treatments? What, what are your thoughts about that particular example? Oh, a hundred percent. You know, we, we were blessed to have the, the monoclonal antibodies when we had them and I felt pretty comfortable, comfortable about that. Uh, but I, I would at no point want to go any further than that, uh, for, for treatment. Um, no, I, I entirely agree, especially with that example. I saw that email come through too and thought, Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> I I'm happy to vaccinate three-year-olds and up, but I, I'm, no interest in something like that that needs to have more specialty come on board and, and more monitoring involved in it. All right, I want to get practical here and, and simply ask, what has Cedar Care been involved in so far when it comes to testing for various illnesses? And do you have any test to treat protocols in place as we speak today? Yes, uh, we do. So when the monoclonals were available uh, and, and, uh, suggested by the FDA for use. We had a test treat protocol, though, with how that law was written, we didn't have to have uh, a provider involved with that, a medical provider involved in that. We have uh, a terrific um, medical director and uh, Dr. Misty Grimson. So she came on board with that. She's also on board with an influenza test to treat. Uh, so if you walked in and tested positive for flu, and right now, Seems like a lot of people are testing positive for flu. It's crazy. Uh, we could get you uh, a, um, Tamiflu and get you treated. So, yeah, we have a couple of those protocols set up. We, we are looking at uh, those biometric screenings. And, geez, what can we do with that? Is diabetic education, uh, you know, going to go right along with it? Uh, but so far, that's what we've got. We are doing a lot of vetting, uh, looking at different vendors for solutions to medical billing, EHR systems. So uh, I would just say stay tuned. There's going to be more to come. How have these, uh, these services been accepted by the community? I think you alluded to this earlier, but I'm, I'm curious, what are those reactions that you get from the people you're able to serve? Ah, oh, man. Um, 
I mean, at times they could bring you to tears just because people come in with a lot of desperation, especially during COVID. Uh, COVID's unique. Um, but, you know, here's a great example. Uh, I was on TV doing uh, some PR for the fact that we had the monoclonal antibodies. And I'll never forget, we had somebody call the pharmacy who did not have COVID, was not calling for anybody who had COVID, but just simply said because we were willing to administer those monoclonal antibodies at our pharmacy that she was going to bring all of her business to our pharmacy. So it was like, whoa, that dramatic reaction really made me feel good that people uh, are, uh, they feel like there's something happening here that that's special. So yeah, I would, I would do that over again in a, in a minute. We've been talking about this idea of test to treat particularly in the context of, of cedar care and here in the state of Ohio where we sit. But let's be honest, the reality is these test-to-treat protocols do vary by state-to-state state as well. Um, so I'm, I'm curious um, if you could give us a little bit of the landscape of how other states are handling this. Is Ohio ahead of the curve, behind the curve? Um, if you don't know, that's okay. Yeah, I, I just question. wonder where everyone is with this. Well, I'll, I'll say this. I was on a a call this morning with an uh, advocacy group for community pharmacies. It's called CPESN. And um, Allison Haas, who's just been doing amazing work with CPESN, um, she is the one who brought it to Ohio. It is the 12th largest of the CPESN state organizations in, in the country. And it was just recently brought to Ohio. I think in Ohio, we're always constantly on that razor's edge of pharmacy. We're questing for more. Um, unfortunately, Dr. Cole, I really can't not knowledgeably answer a lot of that. But what I can say is we have some amazing advocacy groups uh, in CPESN and Ohio Farms Association that are really, really pushing the envelope. Great. Okay. I want to turn back to reimbursement for services. So yeah. it seems like what you had described was doing these services out of the goodness of your heart in some ways, right? To serve the community. So yeah. what does that landscape look like currently? Yeah. So I describe it like this. And when I'm on the phone or I'm, you know, having a, a webinar with these different vendors, I keep, I always say, you know, Hey, I'm looking for who's going to be the next Epic Epic for, you know, if you're not familiar in, in, in the medical world, in the hospital world, Epic is the go-to for billing, EHR, all of it. They planted their flag and they have not looked back. I'm looking for the same thing for an EHR and billing solution for pharmacy. And we got a couple players out there that are really far down the road. I'm very impressed. Uh, but I still haven't figured that out completely. The long and the, the short of it is, hey, we've got some CPT codes in Ohio that we are authorized to submit and get reimbursed for. So now we need to figure out how to do it and put it into to workflow. I think that's the biggest issue is how do I get it into my daily operations in a way uh, that is not a headache. So that is the biggest stumbling block. The solutions I think are there. Um, now we need to decide which one fits our practice well and how do we create a workflow for them? So when you're thinking about reimbursement, uh, is are there monies out there left on the table? My answer is yes. Um, should you, I, I think the best advice we've gotten from somebody who's already doing it was start slow, do what you can now, but start billing now. Start getting that into your workflow now, and it will eventually grow. 
you hit on the documentation of these services and, and keeping of records in an electronic health record. I think that's kind of the nexus of being able to really function well mm -hmm. in an interprofessional healthcare environment. If we can have the data be operable, meaning when you enter it somewhere, it gets to the right people who need to know, like a primary care provider or like someone else who's involved with the patient's care. Um, it's that, Ohio, that whole idea of data liquidity, right? Mm. You put it in one place and it just goes everywhere it needs to go. I, I think if we can find that, whether it's in pharmacy or um, just in the electronic health records in general, wow, this collaborative idea would really take off. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful we'll get there, but we'll see. Yeah, I like that data liquidity. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. Yeah, I didn't make it up. It's a real thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so I, I want to start now turning to the future. So what else will it take for these services like Test to Treat to be widely available and accepted? Uh, I would say you, pharmacists, if... So here's the deal. We've got to change the way we think. So when a doctor is interacting with a patient, a physician is interacting with a patient, there are all a slew of things that they know the insurance companies wants to see done for prevention. Um, HEDIS 2022 hits on a lot of those. If you just Google HEDIS 2022, and it'll talk about those services that insurance companies want to pay for because it saves them gobs of money on the, on the back end. So when we're interacting with any individual at speed, we just need to be so well prepared to document something. For example, if I have somebody come in and they say, Hey, uh, want to come through to get my COVID booster and I can pull up the state database and see not only that I can give a great history or review of their a vaccination record, but also can suggest, hey, you know, you could get your flu shot today too. What have we done there? Well, we have created um, opportunity for reimbursement. Sure. Okay, whatever. But we've created uh, a convenient way for that patient to become more compliant and safe. So those are things that we just have to be thinking of in the moment. We have to train ourselves up. So the more we do it and the more of us that do it, the more widely it will become accepted. It's just how it is. So it, if we will put in the work and we will change the way we think, we're not pill peddlers anymore, we can make this movement happen. But it takes all of us. Yeah, I, I think that's a great answer. With that, law drives a lot of things, right? You talk about the money, <laughs> yeah, but also sure. legislation drives practice mm -hmm. in many ways. And so uh, I think it's been interesting to watch how the White House has responded to the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic here recently. And, and I also got another email just uh, the la a couple of days ago that the White House had communicated plans to significantly increase the number of pharmacies carrying Paxlovid for the treatment of COVID-19 illness, including more support for test-to-treat protocols in pharmacies, which I thought was interesting. Uh, clinics were involved in those test-to-treat protocols as well, so this wasn't just a pharmacy thing. Um, but do you see the federal government offering more support for test-to-treat services in pharmacies in the near future, either through legislation or action by the White House? You know, I really do. Uh, I think in the experiences, I, if you'd asked me that two years ago, obviously, I would have not responded that way. But having seen the success with the monoclonal antibodies, um, how we can expedite the care of patients, 
with these different variants that are popping back up. Yeah, I actually do feel fairly positive that something is going to come out with test a tree uh, for the antivirals. I could see it happening. Yeah, another another piece that I've been reading about is um, HR seventy two thirteen, which is being discussed at the federal level, which is the Equitable Community Access to Pharmacist Services Act. So I'm I'm curious to to follow that. And for for those listeners, if you just simply Google that Equitable Community Access to Pharmacist Services Act, you can see a little bit of some of that potential legislation um, and its its impact in the future. Uh, so what about pharmacy organizations? You had mentioned um, CPESN and OPA and some of the work they're doing. What, what else are you seeing in terms of pharmacy organizations getting involved in advocating for test-to-treat protocols? Well, I need to go back to how Pharmacy Association, they have been heavily involved. If you are looking for collaborative agreement templates, practice uh, protocols, uh, testing protocols, uh, a how-to on setting up your CLIA wave testing site, Go to, go to OPA's website and, uh, well, first, I hope you're a member uh, of OPA. They didn't pay me to say that, but uh, I, I can use a discount, but um, they have everything you need right there, literally. So they just really are thoughtful of, you know, the average Joe pharmacist who's maybe started their own, hung their own shingle, started their own pharmacy and need to get up and running. They really are an advocate for, for those folks. I feel like I'm one of those folks, so they're an advocate for me. So I would really say that's 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 really where you need to go. American Pharmacists, Pharmacists Association also heavily involved uh, on that national level, trying to advocate for, for more rights for, for pharmacists. And what was interesting about that, that bill is that it would uh, – they, they made it clear. APHA did a great job of making clear what it was. And what it wasn't. And they were mindful enough to say, this is what it is. This is what it's not. Because they were thinking about the physician and nurse practitioners that they partner with, obviously. You know, these different organizations, they got to play well in the sandbox. So I was just really impressed with their foresight in doing that. Hey, this is what it is. It's not that over there that you're all scared of. It's this over here. So, uh, yeah, I I have to... um, give them props for what they do. Yeah. It seems like for, um, well, one of the first times, a lot of the organizations are working together. Yeah. Uh, we do have a lot of pharmacy organizations and they all have different strengths and they all have different things that they do well. Um, I've, I've been impressed to see even recently 13 pharmacy organizations come together to collaboratively send a letter to the white house about mm-hmm. these types of ideas. So uh, my hope was we see more of that in the profession. Yeah. And among all of the professions as we move forward. So one of the things you mentioned is if we are going to um, provide these services in our communities, it really is kind of up to the pharmacist, right? So I'd love to get a bit practical about that and simply ask, how do you feel pharmacists and student pharmacists who are the future of this profession can get involved with advocating for test to treat protocols and understanding what they are? Yeah, so I think at first it, it it would behoove everybody to um, become a member of the of the state organization, the Ohio State or sorry, Ohio Pharmacists Association. Um, be reading what they're putting out. They they do a great job of sending stuff out weekly to make sure that you're aware of of what's available, and what you can do. Uh, and then I would tell you to reach out personally. 
to people. Uh, it's amazing to me. I read a four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss way back. And one of the chapters, at the end of it, he assigned homework. And the homework was reach out to somebody you, you think would never get back to you. And at the time, I, I took it seriously. And I emailed uh, the former CEO of CVS. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I sent an email. It was very generic. What do you think of leaders, who, what a leader is in your, your community? And uh, about two weeks later, I get a call from Rhode Island. Hi, this is Larry Mello's uh, executive assistant. He uh, wants to schedule a talk with you and blah, blah, blah. I was like, whoa, Larry Merlot? Larry, 10 million a year Merlot wants to talk to me? Yeah. All right, cool. So in two weeks, she calls and reschedules. And then, then in a month, I'm finally getting on the phone with Larry Merlot. He gets on the phone and he thinks I'm a high school student writing a report. He didn't realize I was, at the time, one of his underlings working for him. So he begrudgingly, but to his credit... Uh, calmly took my my call and, and my question. Doesn't matter what how that conversation went, but what matters is that I I reached out thinking, what the heck? Maybe he'll get back to me. Maybe he won't. I would say that's the same thing. There's nobody at the state level that wouldn't want to support another pharmacist or pharmacy student. So if you want to learn more about test to treat, you got to reach out to them and say, hey, can you plug me in somewhere? What what can I be doing? Is there a pharmacist? near me that I could be talking to. And that's the great thing about a profession. And I'm sure you found this too, Dr. Cole, is that you rarely get turned down by a colleague uh, when you're searching for, for help. Excellent. So you've kind of already answered this question, but I just thought I'd ask it anyway. And that is, if there is a pharmacy that wants to start some of these services, maybe it's starting with one test mm -hmm. and one treatment for that test. Yeah. How do they go about it? What do they do? Yeah. Where do they go? Yeah. Uh, again, going to the website for Higher Forms Association. So some of the things you need to think about that are practical. Number one, if you're going to test, you're going to need a CLIA waiver. So <laughs> way way back when when this testing craze had kind of started in offices and, and then outpatient, uh, they determined that there are certain medical equipment that can be waived as in the, to, to some eight. They're non-complex. Being di diagnosed by them would not involve a, a, a lot of work. Um, I think any pharmacy that's vaccinating, and I assume that's all pharmacies uh, at this point, uh, just getting a test, a testing machine, get your clear waiver and getting a testing machine to test for influenza is a step one. Now, there are plenty of machines out there, all kinds of different machines to test all kinds of different things. And I'm not going to advocate for one over another. That wouldn't be right. But I think starting there, and I'll, uh, and, you know, uh, uh, testing for a virus uh, is a good place to be. Um, I'm going to tell you that COVID's not going anywhere. Okay. So this isn't something that is just going to go away. It's always going to be with us in some form or fashion. So the ability to test for that would be, would be very uh, a very good thing. So every pharmacist, I, I think you need to go and get that CLIA waiver, even if you don't have the equipment on you yet. You need to make sure you have your NPI. You need to make sure you have uh, your uh, Medicaid billing ID. Uh, these sorts of things, just to prepare yourself uh, for that moment when you, when you are going to test to treat. Uh, and then obviously, you're going to need collaborative agreement of some sort. So if it's a doctor in your area that you just have a good relationship with. Um, if you're fortunate enough, like we are at Cedar Care, to have a, a medical director, that's great too. 
I'll be honest. Uh, a lot of these medical directors, uh, if, if you can draw up a contract with them, they're happy. <laughs> they're happy to be paid to sign off on things that they need to sign off on. I pray they're all reading closely what they're signing off on. But uh, you do need to have that relationship started up. Uh, and then think about the layout of your pharmacy. And again, that goes back to reimagining what our role is, changing the way we think. Find that space that you can uh, have a private interaction with a patient, make them feel comfortable. I pray your space is clean and tidy uh, because you are making a reflection upon yourself as a medical provider when it's not. So just those simple common sense things. Don't make this too complicated. It doesn't need to be too complicated. Start somewhere, okay? Don't let analysis paralysis uh, steal away your joy and excitement for caring for your patients on that whole other level. So again, I, I think you do need to reach out to uh, mentors through the Ohio Farms Association to make sure you're doing it right. But uh, at the end of the day, you're going to decide what it looks like for you. And that's the amazing thing about the practice. Yeah, that's great. Well, this has been a fun conversation. I always love having you here on the podcast. We have <laughs> a lot too. of fun. Um, any last parting words about this topic that you uh, just are, are dying to talk about and maybe haven't asked about? Uh I, I think with test to treat, we, we need to, I'm going to emphasize this again. We need to be bold. We need to step out and, and it's scary stepping out there and it's different. It's unique, uh, but you just got to do it. And you, you're going to feel the benefit of it when you have, uh, you know, that person in front of you who has felt the convenience of that happening, uh, who is just in all the, all the things that you're going to be able to do for them. And it, to be honest, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel empowered that you can do more, right? Remember, we got those monoclonal antibodies. I'll share this last story and it'll be done, okay? But when we got the monoclonal antibodies uh, and we treated our first patient who was just so appreciative, that's the sort of stuff that brought tears to my eyes. I had one patient who had a mentally handicapped brother and they couldn't go to the hospital to get treated because she'd have to be back there with him. And they didn't want more than one person back at a time being treated. Uh, well, they they came to us as a last ditch. And uh, I was able to treat him. And we just had such a spiritual interaction by doing that. That was so much more rewarding than any kind of reimbursement I could ever get. So go forth. Get your machines. Get to testing. And uh, let's make a change in our community. Great parting words. Well, thanks again, Dr. Justin Kobe, for coming on the podcast. We're very appreciative of your expertise and also um, just being willing to engage with us on these topics. So I uh, wish you the best as uh, you continue to make a huge difference here in the Cedarville community through Cedar Care. Thank you, Dr. Cole. You have been listening to Disrupt, a podcast from the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe and share this podcast with others. Thanks for listening.